Jesus is stronger. And I'm going to declare that to you again today. We've been doing this mini-series in the book of Mark. As we've been going through Mark, we see this section where Jesus is clearly pointing out that he is stronger. And last week, if you weren't with us, we were talking about how Jesus is stronger than the storms. Stronger than the storms of life. Any trial, any difficulty, cancer, loss, anything that you could possibly have come into your life, that Jesus is stronger than that. And even in the midst of our chaos, that his care supersedes, is greater than any of our chaos. And so we've been talking about the strength of Jesus. And if you think about our, our images of strength that we see throughout culture and in society and the analogies that we could use, there are a lot of them that are out there. Uh, I was thinking about uh, just this morning about when I was a little kid on the playground, five, six years old, however old it was, and you get in an argument with one of the other kids on the playground, and I thought it was interesting I didn't argue that I was stronger than the other person. I'd argue that my dad is my dad's stronger than your dad. Like, neither one of us can lift up these monkey bars, but my dad can lift these monkey bars. And the other kid says, you know, my dad can lift a car. And then I say, I, my dad can lift a house. And the game turns into not who has the stronger dad, but who can tell the biggest lie. <laughs> That's one of those happening. But we're seeking for analogies of what's strong. And you start thinking about what are the things that we see that are strong. And sometimes you see uh, different stuff. I've seen, I don't know if you've noticed that CrossFit's become really popular. There's some strong people that do CrossFit. They have CrossFit games actually now. As if running's not hard enough and lifting weights isn't hard enough, they'll put the two things together. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but like they'll run with weights, like throw them down, pick them up, run, lift the thing. It's like, man, that, that person's strong. Or you see these strongman competitions. I don't know if you've ever seen these on TV. Uh, usually when you can't sleep, at least that's what happened to me. Uh, you'll see guys like pulling buses, like they'll have like some strap around their shoulder and they're like pulling a bus or they're throwing boulders over something that's super high and they're demonstrating their strength. And you see these demonstrations of strength throughout society and in culture. It's, it's happened probably <laughs> since the beginning. I was reading about a guy this week, John Holton, Back in the mid-1800s, late-1800s, he used to do a show like a circus show, and it was feats of strength. And at the climax of the show, what he would do is they would bring out a cannon, and they would set it, and he would get in front of it. It's a strong guy. I didn't say he was a smart guy. He'd sit in front of the cannon, and they'd shoot the cannon, a 50-pound cannonball. He'd catch it with his bare hands, kind of absorb it into his chest. And I thought, that dude is strong. And I bet some of you have probably done some strong things before. Have you ever been the person who comes into the kitchen when somebody's trying to open like a jar of pickles? And they've all loosened it up for you, and they hand it to you, and it's like in a burst of strength. Now everyone can have fermented cucumbers. That's like our strength, right? All of our images of strength pale in comparison to what we're talking about with Jesus in this series. We talk about Jesus as stronger, stronger than cancer, stronger than depression, stronger than anxiety, stronger than fear, stronger than any difficulty we can experience, stronger than the storms of life. That's what we were talking about last week. And many of you came up here in your response last week as, as a declaration of praise or in a step of faith and wrote on this board that you can see up here. And you may read this while I'm preaching to you. And you see those are the people in your church are writing that Jesus is stronger than those things. And we were talking about the storms of life last week. But today we're going to talk about how Jesus is stronger than our enemy. And we all have enemies. And I'm talking about enemies like rivals, like, you know, NC State's enemy is UNC and UNC's is Duke and Duke's is the rest of the world, I guess. I don't know who they are, but I'm not talking about that, like just competition type stuff. I mean, real legitimate enemies. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you may not know this, but did you know that you're God's enemy? The Bible actually teaches that. See, a lot of times we get this idea that with our sin, it's just like we're broken and we need to be fixed, or we're like a soul that needs to be mended, and that's not true. The Bible actually says that we're rebelling against God, that we're going our own way, and that God's wrath is going to come upon us if we don't change, if we don't turn to Jesus by the day of judgment, because what happened was at the cross, when Jesus died on the cross, that wasn't just like a picture of his love for us. He was absorbing the wrath of his Father that's poured out on all of sin. 
And so we have a choice to make, whether we absorb that wrath on the day of judgment, or we turn to Jesus Christ, who's already done it for us on the cross, and we place our faith in Jesus. And if we do that, if we place our faith in Jesus, we're no longer enemies of God. We get adopted into his family. We're his sons, we're his daughters, we're part of God's family. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, your enemy is actually God. And as you run from him, you're rebelling against him, and you're asking for God's wrath in your life. But if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you're not God's enemy. You no longer have an enemy who's omnipotent and all-knowing. Amen. But it doesn't mean you don't have enemies. You do. Every follower of Jesus has at least three. One is Satan. Now, some people like to pretend like Satan doesn't exist, like, you know, they minimize him. I'm talking about like a little devil on your shoulder who tempts you to do stuff, an angel over here. Or it's just a personification of evil. Or, or We get this idea like we're too mentally sophisticated, uh, intellectually advanced to believe in Satan any longer. But Jesus says he exists. You know what Jesus says about him? He's got a threefold plan for your life. He wants to rob from you. He wants to steal from you. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy you. He's an enemy and he hates you. Peter says that he's like a lion, a roaring lion, roaming the earth, looking for whom to devour. So you have an enemy, and he wants to destroy your life. And those who believe in Satan, like the scriptures teaches, clearly he does exist. Sometimes the temptation for us can be is to say, well, then anything bad that happens is Satan. Satan's at work, and Satan's doing bad stuff in our country, and Satan's doing bad stuff in our personal lives, and Satan's doing... But the reality is we have another enemy, and it's ourselves. Oftentimes the greatest enemy is the enemy within James talks about it like this in, in James chapter 1. And James says that, that each one is tempted when by his own evil desire. Not that Satan's tempting him, it's your own desire within you. See, Satan's not everywhere. He's not all the places all the time, omnipresent like God is. He's one. And so sometimes the issue is just within ourselves. By his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. And then verse 15 tells us about our third enemy. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death, leads to destruction. Sin, it's crouching at your door. It desires to have you. Every follower of Jesus has at least three enemies. Satan, sin, self. The question for you today is, which one is most likely on the attack? When you look at your life, is it, is it, the, is it the battle that's happening out here? That, is that we, ha, we don't battle against flesh and blood. We battle against not just Satan, but his demons, his servants, and there's a spiritual warfare that's taking place that many times we don't see and we like to ignore. Or is it within? Is it the desires within? And some of you have besetting sins, sins that have held you, sins that maybe you wrote on this board, or maybe somebody else wrote your sin on this board. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's your past sin. Maybe it's a divorce. Maybe it's uh, shame. Maybe it's... It's one of the things that are on here, and, and that's your greatest enemy. For some of you, it's self. It's those desires, sin, self, Satan. It's probably a combination. But I'm going to declare to you today one simple but life-changing truth, that Jesus is stronger than the enemy. Jesus is stronger than the greatest enemy you could ever face. And that's what we see in our passage as we continue on in the book of Mark. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Mark in Mark chapter 5. We're really picking up where we left off. Last week we were in the end of chapter 4 where Jesus is in the storm with the disciples. And today we're going to be in Mark chapter 5 verses 1 through 20 and we're going to see that Jesus is greater than the enemies that we face. Jesus is greater. He is stronger. He is superior to. He has authority over any enemy that we will face. And what's happening, if you weren't with us last week, is that Jesus is having one of those days. 
and last week was Mother's Day, and I, I know moms can identify with that. When you have one of those days, it's just like one thing happens and another thing happens, and it's just, it's just great to survive, like to make it to the end of the day that your head can hit that pillow, and it's like, I made it. And Jesus is having one of those days. I was just thinking about this when we were singing the last song. That starts in chapter 3, and it's still going in chapter 5. Now, do you realize in the Bible, sometimes like hundreds of years will happen between chapters? Jesus is having a day that lasts multiple chapters in the Bible. That is a crazy day. And it starts in chapter 3. And what happened in chapter 3, at the beginning of his day, is he cast out a demon. And so he's helping. Like, how could that not be a good thing? He casts a demon out of a guy, heals a guy, forgives this guy, and then he gets accused of doing it by the power of Satan. <laughs> Talk about you can't win. He's accused of casting out Satan by the power of Satan, and he goes from that situation to a domestic dispute where his own family doesn't understand him, and they want to protect him from himself. And then he goes from that, and so he's got one thing after another thing. He goes out, and he starts teaching this large crowd. He's sitting in a boat, and they don't get it. So he has to explain it some more, and he has to explain it to his disciples and parents. Can you understand that? Like, multiple times explaining stuff. He's having one of those days. And then he says to his disciples, let's go to the other side, only to then be faced with a storm, a hurricane-like storm, at which, do you remember, he was sleeping in the boat when it was going on. Just so thankful. It's his humanity. Thankful to be able to lay down. The disciples, professional fishermen, get so distraught. They look at, up at the stern of the boat and the backside of the boat, and they say to him, Don't you care? We drowned. And they wake Jesus up, and Jesus wakes up. and So patient, he doesn't rebuke them. Just the word of his mouth, shh, wind, shh rebukes the wind and the waves and we see that Jesus care it surpasses it's greater than any chaos that can be happening in our lives and he looks at them and he's not talking about the storm anymore but he goes right after what's going on in their heart and he says you have fear and your fear is stopping your faith and and he's going after their faith and remember verse 41 where we ended it they were terrified but remember the storm's over what are they scared of they're not scared of the storm they're scared of the person who's in this boat because they've not only seen his humanity when he's sleeping, but they've seen his deity, and the wind and the waves obey him, and they say, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They're still sopping wet when they come to the shore in chapter 5. They're still too afraid to even ask. They didn't ask Jesus. They asked each other, verse 41, who is this? They're still trying to figure that out, and look what happens chapter 5. They land on shore, and you'd expect they get a break, like a, vaca a little mini vacation, Jesus, something. But that's not what happens. Look at verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. Verse 2, when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. No rest for the weary, right? His, this is not done. It's, there's another experience. Jesus knew the whole time. He knew the storm was going to come, and he knew who was waiting for him on the other side. Verse 3, this man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Verse 4, for he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Verse 5, night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus? Now remember the question the disciples are asking, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? There's your answer. From demons. They know. Then, swear to God that you will not torture me. Which is ironic when you consider what the demons have been doing to this man that we just read about in verses 3 through 5, torturing him. 
Verse 8, for Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you evil spirit. And then Jesus asked him, what is your name? Just trying to get to know each other. <laughs> hey, demon, what is your name? That's not what's happening here. What Jesus is doing, he's about to put his power, his strength, his authority on display. And he wants to be clear to his disciples, to this man, I realize this is not one demon. Watch this. My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. I wonder what that voice sounded like. Other than human, I'm sure. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. We want to stay in this city. What was it about that city that those demons liked so much? A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. Verse 12, the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank to the lake and were drowned. They destroyed the pigs. The enemy's plan is to destroy. You get a visual picture of it when the pigs went running into the lake. We saw last week the storm that was happening on the water, and what we see as soon as they hit shore is the storm, and the same kind of chaos is happening inside the life of this man. And what we see is that Satan is ruling in this guy's life. He's got an unclean spirit that is a servant of Satan, that's a demon, and it's identified as one spirit until later in the story when we find out there's actually multiple spirits there, and it's not just one enemy. There are multiple enemies in his life at work, and they are ruling. But here's the truth I want you to get today. When the enemy rules, whatever enemy, sin, Satan, self, some other enemy. When the enemy rules, Jesus can overrule. When the enemy rules, Jesus can overrule. Now, Jesus doesn't need the enemy to be ruling in order for him to rule, because when the enemy's not ruling, Jesus is reigning. He is ruling. Things are the way they, in they were intended to be. But when the enemy does rule, Jesus can overrule that enemy. It doesn't matter how powerful, how strong. No one was strong enough, the text said, but Jesus was. The man just hadn't met Jesus yet. I'm going to tell you when um, I was first reflected on this truth was uh, right after Easter. We'd gone through a difficult time as a family, and a, a good friend of mine sent me a blog and was talking about Easter in the blog. And the blog was uh, sharing how what ultimately happened at the cross was that Satan was ruling. He killed Jesus, the Son of God. But through the resurrection, it was a demonstration that when Satan rules, God can overrule. The ultimate picture is the cross, but we see it in other places. We see it here in this passage of Scripture, too, that any time the enemy is ruling, whatever enemy it is, that Jesus can overrule the enemy. And so the question for us becomes, then, who rules in your life? What is it that's ruling? And if you're a follower of Jesus, of course we all want to say, well, Jesus, Jesus rules in our life. He's Lord of my life. I've submitted to him, bowed my knee to him. That is true, and, and Lord willing, that's true the majority of the time. But aren't there at least times where other things are ruling in your life? Anytime you say yes to sin, you're telling Jesus to leave. And last week we had people come forward, like I already mentioned, and they wrote on this board, and you just see some of the things that are written up here on this board. There's stuff on the sides, there's stuff on the front. I think it's appropriate that one of the biggest ones that was written is right here, is fear. When fear is ruling in your life, what does it mean to be ruling? Well, have you ever had fear to the point where it controls the decisions you make? Fear where it stops you maybe from taking a step of faith. Fear where it changes the direction that you're headed. Guess what? Then fear is ruling. But when fear rules, Jesus can overrule. Or you go and you pick some of the other things off here. You, uh, personal struggle, anger, anxiety, being alone, darkness, divorce, failure. Just start reading some of the stuff that's on here. Shame. Shame's ruling in your life. And shame impacts the way that you make decisions. Maybe you don't, you're not vulnerable. You don't connect. 
Maybe you need to impact your relationship with God. Do you remember what the enemy's plan is? Steal from you, rob you, stop you from having the relationship with God that God intends for you to have. And when shame rules, guess what can happen? Jesus can overrule. Like anger and anxiety, we're right up there. Anger's ruling, anxiety's ruling, depression's ruling, sleeplessness, somebody wrote, death, all these things. When, when you're thinking about those things and those things are controlling your decisions and those things rule, Jesus can overrule. And that's what we see here in this passage. Satan is ruling in this passage through one of his servants, one of the demons, in this man's life. And so that's the, the picture from the moment that they step in shore. There's this guy who lives in the tombs, and, and he's got an unclean spirit. It's the first thing we, we learn about him, that Satan is ruling. But then what we see is that Jesus overrules. And we get a bunch of details about what's happening in this guy's life. Mark shares a lot of details here. It was probably Peter shared with him an eyewitness account. But Luke gives us some details that Mark doesn't share. You can read the same story on your own eventually in Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8 and verse 27... Luke tells us that when they stepped ashore, that he, talking about Jesus, was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. And then here's one of the details that Luke shares that Mark doesn't share with us. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes. Oh, we didn't know he was naked from Mark's account. But he had lived in the tombs. Now, Mark tells us that. But notice that it's for a long time. How long? How long has this guy been in this terrible state that we just read about in verses 3 through 5? We don't know how long, but it's a long time. It's not days. It might be months. It's probably years. But the fact that it says for a long time means it hasn't always been this way. And so if it hasn't always been this way, try and think about this man's life. What was it like before he was possessed by this evil, and we see multiple evil spirits eventually, but how did, how did, how did, what, what was he like before that? Did he have a family? Does he have a wife somewhere? who's waiting for him to come, hoping that some miracle will happen in his life and that he'll be changed, he'll come back home and can be her husband. Does, she, does he have kids? What's it like for the kids? Do the kids, do they go to the school and do they get made fun of Because everybody knows your dad's the dad that's out there, he's screaming like a maniac, cutting himself, he lives among the tombs? The ripple effect of this that would impact other people too. And did he used to have a job? Did he used to have a good reputation? Maybe he had a home, maybe all of that, I mean, he's lost everything. So then the question has to become, how do you get into a state like this? How does he become this guy? Was it maybe sin? Maybe it was something he let rule in his life. Maybe fear started to rule in his life. And he submitted to that. And it became normal. And then shame came in. And then anger came in. And anxiety and depression and sleeplessness. And before long, he was open to Satan's attack. Maybe it started with one demon, and then it was two, and then it was multiple. Or maybe there was just a, one traumatic experience. Maybe one thing happened, and he saw it, and it made him vulnerable, and he didn't deal with it in a healthy way by faith, but he was going by fear, and Satan got a foothold. Somehow, something took place. Because he, he wasn't born like this, but he's been like this for a long time. Now I imagine when I see all these details and Mark, Peter telling this story, and telling it to Mark, his friend, who's going to write it down on this gospel, and he's going to share it so that believers that are being persecuted that he's writing to here and for you and for me, that we're going to see at some point, and we're going to realize that Jesus is stronger than anything, and he can deliver us from anything. But I imagine Peter telling the story. We were still wet. We're still arguing with each other. Who is this Jesus? Who is this guy that the wind and the waves obey him? And we come, and then this naked guy comes running up, and he's been like that for a long time. So he probably hasn't bathed. He's a mess. 
He's been cutting himself. He's screaming. He lives among the tombs. And what do you start to see here? And you look in Mark and you see the details that Mark wrote down. Why does he write down what he does? Because we only have a a few verses here that actually describe this man. Verses 3 through 5. And a lot of people say that the person who suffered the most in the Bible was Job. But I'm going to question that today. Because with Job we see 42 chapters worth of information. Here we only have a few verses but this guy is clearly the worst off person that we, worse than the woman caught in adultery, worse than the prostitutes, worse than the tax collectors. His situation is the most difficult situation we see in the Gospels and, and maybe in the whole Bible. And we only have three verses that describe it. And look at what it says. It says in verse 3, this man lived in the tombs. Why is it that between verses 2 and 5, Mark mentions three times that he was in the tombs? He's trying to point this out. He wants you to see it. Verse 2, this man came from the tombs. Verse 3, this man lived in the tombs. Verse 5, every night and day among the tombs. Yeah, we got that, Mark. Why are you pointing that out? Here's why. Because living among the tombs was a place for unclean people to live. In fact, everything about this story screams unclean. We find out later in verse 20 that they're in this place, the Decapolis, the ten, these ten Gentile cities. The Gentiles to Jews were considered unclean people. It started off in the story that this man has an unclean spirit. We find out that he lives among the tombs, an unclean place. Because Jews, you weren't to touch a dead body. And then they wrote more rules beyond the Bible and said, you know, not even where they laid and not into the instruments that were used. And so to live among the tombs, people thought that's they were haunted. And so this man has an unclean spirit. He lives in an unclean place with Gentiles. He is also at a place where there's these pigs, which are unclean animals. Everything about this story screams, unclean, 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 unclean. It'd be like if I came in and told you. So there was this guy the other day, and uh, he was a pedophile, human trafficking, drug dealing, baby aborting terrorist. It's not just one thing. And there was another thing, and another thing, and another thing. And so if you're a Jew and you're reading this, some of you would think to yourselves, why is Jesus, forget about the demons, forget about, why is he even talking to this guy? That's what Mark's showing us. But Jesus does more than just talk to this guy. Look what it says next in describing this guy's situation. Try and imagine what he's going through. This man lived in the tombs. And no one could bind him. They were treating him like an animal. Not even with chains. They tried to put chains on him to restrain him. For he had often been chained hand and foot. But he tore the chains apart. There's a feat of strength. And then it says... He broke the irons that were on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. That word for subdue is the same word that's used elsewhere in the Bible in James chapter 3 about taming an animal. No one could tame it like a wild animal. No one could tame this guy. He hadn't met Jesus yet. And then it says, Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out. Who's he crying out to? Probably God. Perhaps his old family. Maybe his friends. Maybe his friends are some of the people that come and try and bind him with these chains. I wonder what, no words? Like he's crying, the word, the idea here is crying out is like inhumane type screaming that's happening. That's coming, people hear this. And so why are they binding him with chains? It's for their own safety. 
We've got to ask ourselves, how often do we do this kind of thing? We treat someone for our own benefit. We're not even thinking about them. What humiliation this is adding. This man's already naked, a picture of shame, a picture of humiliation. He's already, he's living in the tombs. Everyone knows he's unclean, and now you're going to chain him up. And not only, then he cries out for help, and no one's listening. It doesn't even seem like God is listening. And then it says the next description, and he cut himself with stones, probably sharp stones like flint. And scholars debate, why is he cutting himself with stones? Some people propose the idea that it was pagan worship because the demons had control of him, that he was worshiping Satan. And some people say that it's, it's because he can't, it's like today, I don't know if you know this, but a lot of people will cut themselves that are dealing with pain and it's because they're trying to deal with the inward pain by inflicting outward pain and it doesn't work and I'm going to tell you if you're doing that, it's demonic. Some people argue that what's happening with this man is that he's trying to kill himself. This is actually suicide. And it's not working. And so can you imagine being Peter and the image that you see here of this man who's naked? has been like that for a long time. He's living in a cemetery. He's unclean. He's the kind of person that no one talks to. In fact, they're afraid of him. And he falls down at the feet of Jesus and you see these scars, these cuts all over him. Maybe he's still got blood on him. Maybe there's scars and marks from the chains that have been on him. There's one thing that's clear is the picture that Mark is painting here is this guy is harassed and he's helpless. He's being harassed by these demons. How ironic that the demons say, don't torture us. And that's the very thing they're doing to this man. There's another place in the Bible where Jesus is teaching and he sees a different group of people. And he describes them as harassed and helpless. It's in Matthew chapter 9. What's been happening is that Jesus has been teaching in all the synagogues. And he's been healing diseases and people have been coming to him. Large crowds are coming. And so they want to be around him. Some of them want to be fed. Some of them want to be healed. Some of them just want to hear the new teaching. And in Matthew chapter 9, in verse 36, Jesus says what, what it was like for him. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. That means he was emotionally moved. Because they, they were harassed and helpless. Why were they harassed and helpless? Like sheep without a shepherd, because Jesus wasn't the one ruling. But what did he see when he looked out at that crowd? We'll start reading through the kinds of people that Jesus comes into contact with. You know what he saw? He saw some well-dressed businessmen and women that would travel around for business. He saw some day laborers. He saw moms. He saw nurses. He saw teachers. He saw law enforcement. He saw soldiers. He saw religious leaders. Then on the outside, everything looked great. But when Jesus looked at them, he saw... The same thing we see on the outside of this demon-possessed guy going on in the inside of their lives. Do you know why? Because they were ruled by things like anger and job situations and shame and guilt and fear and darkness and divorce and the pain that had happened in their lives. And so Jesus saw them as harassed and helpless because these other things were ruling in their lives. And so church family, those of you who are part of this church on a regular basis, you're a member of this church. Can you see that in people? Do you see that oftentimes the masks that we put on and the fronts that we and the smiling faces and the nice clothes and the carrying the Bible and doing all that? There's oftentimes behind that, there's pain. That's, the stuff that's written up here was written by people at this church. Can you see that? And maybe that's you. And maybe the picture that's happening on the outside of this man is not what's happening in your life, but what's going on on the inside? Because the enemy was at work here, and the enemy's plan. I've already quoted it to you, but let me read it to you. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, the very words of Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He wants to destroy you. And Peter says, in 1 Peter, that Satan, the enemy, is like a lion. Your enemy, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. He wants to destroy you. And it's working in some of our lives. 
And it's certainly working in our world. I'll share with you some statistics, things that are just happening in our world. Sometimes we go into our neighborhoods and we close our garage doors, we get in our apartment and we lock the door and we don't want, we don't want to think about this stuff. But this is what's going on. This is statistics as updated as I could get. In 2014, or some of the crime ones, I said that police made over 11 million arrests in 2014. About 500,000 of them were for violent crimes. That's rape, murder, violent crimes. Half a million. Those were just arrests. It's estimated there were well over a million violent crimes that year. That might be low. People don't get arrested. Crimes don't get reported. Let me tell you something, Satan is a destroyer. You can look at the porn statistics. Go to covenanteyes.com. You'll see all kinds of statistics about how much pornography is being used. Let me tell you what that dictates to you. It tells you is that we take people and we objectify them, the very image bearers of God. What is, what's happening? What is Satan doing to this man in this passage? He's, why is he cutting him? He's defiling the image of God because every human being is an image bearer of God. And Satan wants to destroy. You don't think it's happening? Here's some abortion statistics. We've quoted before things like how many abortions happen. Probably the estimates are low, but because lots of abortions sometimes don't go to reported. 42 million a year is about the estimate. But here's an interesting statistic. Why? And this is by a pro-abortion group that put these statistics together. 1% are because of rape. 6% because of potential health problems with the mom or the baby. 93% because of social reasons. That's the child's unwanted or inconvenient. So Satan's coming up with a diabolical plan. Hey, how about we make them love materialism and comfort so much we'll destroy their kids? He's a destroyer. Who's having them? 43% identify as Protestant. Why? Why is that number so high? About 35% of women have had an abortion. That means whether it's written on that board or not, it's happened here. Satan wants to destroy not just destroy that baby's life, but destroy you. Read about the people, find about the people, talk about the people, talk to people who've had abortion. What it's like afterwards. Some other statistics. And we're in a college town, right? As of December, 150 of our higher education institutions were under investigation for mishandling sexual assault cases. Not just that they're happening. These are universities that are mishandling them. 150 of them under investigation. It's estimated about 90% of rapes on campus don't get reported, but... Even with the information we do have, we live in a world where one in five women will be raped. One in four girls and one in six boys will be sexually abused before they turn 18 years old. Satan is a destroyer. But Jesus is a deliverer. And when Satan means to destroy, if he can do it at the cross, if he can defeat death, guess what he can do? He can handle these demons. He can handle these demons too. He can handle what you're going through. When Satan wants to destroy, God can actually take the worst situation and turn it into the greatest good. That's what he did with the cross. If, that was, if the cross was Satan's weapon against Jesus, he took Satan's weapon of destruction and used it for ultimate your deliverance. Jesus took the worst crime in human history, the murder of God. He says on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. They don't realize the implications of what's happening. Oh, they know they're murdering me. They know they're executing me in the most gruesome form possible, in the most public spectacle possible. But it's going to make it even greater glory when I rise from the dead. So what Jesus did is he took the greatest crime in human history and used it for your greatest good. So you don't think he can take your? What is it? 
anger, divorce, anxiety, shame. You don't think you can take that and actually use it ultimately for your good? Painful, yes. So maybe we get in the moment like the guys on the boat. Don't you even care? Maybe we're like the demons, this guy who's crying out and it's like he's not answering, but he is. His timing is always perfect. He might deliver you from it. He might allow you to go through it, but he'll be with you. And he can turn it to good because Jesus is delivered. And when the enemy rules, Jesus can overrule. Amen? That's what he's doing here in this passage. And look at what happens next. The confrontation, verse 6, with this demon. The demon sees him from a distance. And then, I don't know if you're experts in battle or not, or in, like, fighting. And I'm not. But I've seen, you know, the boxing pre-matches. Like, they'll do the press conferences to get some hype for the, the match. And then the two guys always stand there, and they, like, shirts off, stare each other in the face. Or MMA, MMA does that. Wrestling does that. Like, all these places, they do this, where they'll face each other off. And sometimes it's like the odds are, like, a million to one that one of the guys can win. Like, you know who's going to win this deal. But you never see the other. The other guy's always looking tough. And sometimes you'll, like, slap in the brawl you know the real fight's not going to happen then and like you see that never do you see one of those guys come in with their shirt off looking all strong and then fall down on their knees before the enemy and say just have mercy on me (laughs) but look what happens here verse 6 when he talking about the demons this guy saw Jesus from a distance he ran he fell down on his knees in front of him but no one was strong enough to subdue this guy verse 4 but he submits before Jesus He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Remember, the disciples are asking themselves the question, who is this? They left everything to follow this guy, and they don't know who he is. And then this guy who's never seen Jesus before cries out the accurate identity of Jesus. How does he know? Because he's been with Jesus from eternity past because it's the demons speaking. And the demons, you can read the passages, sometimes they're a little bit cryptic, but you read like in Isaiah where Satan was in heaven. And so were the demons. And so they've seen the Father. They've seen the Son. They've seen the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus comes walking up in the flesh, humanity, but still full deity, the demons recognize him. Read the New Testament. Demons always have accurate theology. Son of the Most High God, what do you want with me? Swear to God you won't torture me. How ironic. And how does he know he's going to be tortured? Because he knows how this whole deal ends. He knows the book of Revelation. Satan knows the Bible. The demons know the truth. They lose. They know they lose in the end. So why are they saying, don't torture, don't torture me now? They know what happens. Read Revelation chapter 14. They know they end up in the abyss. They know they end up with eternal torment. They know they end up where Satan ends up. They know they end up where everyone who doesn't place their faith in Jesus ends up. But you know what the demons are like? You know what Satan's like? They're like suicide bombers. I don't know if you watch the news. There's a car bomb this week in the Middle East. There was a couple other bombs that took place. About 90 people killed in one day by ISIS. Those suicide bombers, they know they're going to die. They just want to take as many people with them as they can. That's what these demons are like. Not yet. Let us stay in this city. There's still vulnerable people here. Let us be here. There's still people. We just want to take as We know where we're going. We just want to take as many people with us as we can. You don't think there's a battle taking place? It's a battle over your heart. Jesus was going to illustrate his own power here to his disciples and to this man. He's going to put a stake in the ground to this man and show him that what happened was real. So he asked this this demon, he's asked the demon just to leave this guy, and then he says in verse 9, then he asked him, what is your name? And I can't even imagine what this sounded like. 
My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. The term legion would be representative to many people because of Roman oppression, of strength and oppression. And the way that they would rule was by murder, rape, violent crime. That's how Rome, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was taken by violent crime. And, and what's used here, this, this term legion, is for a segment of the Roman army, a regiment of about 6,000 men. Somewhere between 5,400 and 6,000. That's how big a, a legion would be. And so, why does the demon use the term legion? Is it because maybe the experience this guy had that drove him to this situation was something that happened with a Roman legion? Maybe. Or maybe he's just saying, there's a bunch of us here, Jesus. It's not just one in this guy. And he begged Jesus, submission again, again and again, not to send them out of the area. It says in verse 11, there's a large herd of pigs. And I said, let's go into the pigs. And Jesus gives them permission to go into the pigs. And they take these pigs and they run these pigs off the hill into the water and destroy them because they can't destroy the man. At least they can destroy the pigs. They're destined, their purpose, their focus is for destruction. I want to destroy you. But what Jesus does is he uses their very destruction as a picture of his deliverance and the deliverance of this man. Because while Satan wants to destroy, Jesus came to deliver. And the point is here for his disciples, I can deliver you from anything and from everything. This is the worst case scenario, this guy. And he delivers this guy, and he doesn't break a sweat in the process, by the way. Yeah, go ahead and go on the pigs. The demons know that he's in control, that when the enemy rules, that he can overrule. And what Jesus does is he takes their purposes of destruction, uses them for your deliverance. That means he can deliver you from anything. And so if you're believing, because oftentimes one of Satan's tools is to get you into isolation and start feeding you lies. He's the God of lies. He's deceptive. He's the God of this earth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he's actually the God of this air. And he does rule and he does reign. But then Jesus comes and he overrules and he overreigns. And so what you sometimes might believe is things like, well, because I had that abortion, I can never be forgiven. No, Jesus could use that very thing to drive you to the point of seeing your helplessness and your need to be forgiven. Because, of I, because I hurt this person, because I did this thing, because, I, because this happened to me, because I'm divorced, because of the shame, because of the guilt, because of the... Jesus can deliver you from any of that. That's what he does with this man. And here's what happens. When Jesus does overrule, we must respond. See, Jesus, when the enemy rules, Jesus can overrule. But when the enemy rules and Jesus does overrule him sin, Satan, self, then we have to decide what kind of response we're going to have. And that's what the rest of this passage talks about in verses 14 through 20 are the different responses. Those tending the pigs, because there were some guys that that was their business, they were tending these pigs, and they ran off. They reported this. Like a news reporter, they go and tell the whole town. And let me tell you something. You've got a story here. You've got something for the business section. We just lost 2,000 pigs at once. That's a lot of demons. That's a lot of money. Jesus didn't destroy the pigs. Satan destroyed the pigs. And for a Jew to hear that would be like, wow. Not only did he deal with the demons, but he also got rid of those unclean animals at the same time and that unclean occupation of, hurt, of raising these pigs. So you got something for the business section. You got something for the religion section. You got something for the opinion section. You got a, quite a story here. It says they reported this in the town, the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. All the people went out to see what had happened. In verse 15, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons and look at what he's doing. Everything that we're going to read in these next verses are a contrast to what we read in verses 3 through 5. He's not running around out of his mind and screaming. He's sitting there. It's a picture of peace. He's not voluntarily at the feet of Jesus. He's dressed. 
not naked, not shame and humiliation, which is what nudity was a symbol of, but he's dressed. Who gave him clothes, by the way? Was it Peter? One of the disciples had an extra tunic, but they, I mean, they're soaking wet. And we read later, if you've got two tunics and somebody needs one, give them, give them your cloak. Give them. This guy's dressed. He's in his right mind. It's not the chaos anymore. Jesus has given him real joy, real peace. And it says the people's response. But the response is to this change. See, sometimes as churches, what we can do is that we want, we love people and we want sinners to come to Christ and we want all that. We can so emphasize that we'll take you just as you are. You come however you are, whatever your situation is. And we can miss the fact that Jesus loves them. He doesn't just talk to this guy, which would have been mind-blowing for some people, but he changes this guy. That Jesus doesn't just leave people the way that they are, but he changes you in who he intends you for you to be. And that's what he's showing with this picture. The picture of this guy is ultimately a picture of the transformation, of the life change that Jesus wants to do that only Jesus can do. And there's an outward manifestation of it. It's not just that he thinks different. It's not just that he feels different. You actually see transformation in this guy's life. He is different. And what Jesus chooses to use to show his disciples, here's the most dramatic case in the New Testament. This guy, he was this way. It's like saying, you're blind, now you can see. You're lost, now you can find. Here's a real picture of it. This guy was out of his mind, now he's in his right mind. This guy had no peace, now he has peace. He was in humiliation, he's in shame. Now look at him here. He's different. He's been changed. So we see this. We see this today still. Jesus still does this. I was reading a story yesterday uh, from Christianity Today. It was a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Some of you maybe have heard of her. Rosaria is a, a woman who, for the first part of her life, uh, was a leftist, liberal professor. She taught English and women's, women's rights, women's teaching, women's truth. She was a lesbian. And she talks about how uh, her picture of Christians were, like when she would go on her gay rights parades, uh, they, they, she'd be mocked by Christians. And she'd see them. She'd see their Bible verses. She wasn't unfamiliar with the Bible verses. And her opinion was, they have great joy in the fact of knowing that me and my friends are going to hell. That was her perception. She heard things that were said. Her perception of Christianity was what the religious right would say. Is that really what you want representing you as a follower of Jesus? Because a lot of times stuff you see in the Bible and that doesn't line up. That's what her perception was. And the Christian she had come into contact with, that was her experience. And so when Promise Keepers was coming to her town, she had become a tenured professor, and her goal was now to be this radical, leftist, lesbian professor. She wrote a book about it, all that stuff. And these Promise Keepers are coming to town, she writes an article, she starts investigating the religious right, starts reading the Bible, writes this article, and starts talking about all the problems, criticizing them. The article got a lot of publicity, and she started to get mail. Some of it was fan mail, some of it was hate mail. She said she got so much mail, she put a Xerox box on two spots of her desk, one for the fan mail, one for the hate mail. And she'd get letters, and she'd read it, you know, fan mail, this one's hate mail. She got one letter from a pastor that defied her filing system. And what it did was, and here's this postmodern, you know, intellectual, lesbian leftist, and, and he's, not, he's not telling her all the stuff she should believe. He's questioning the presuppositions she has in the, in the article. And she didn't like the letter. It wasn't hate it, it wasn't hateful, it wasn't a fan, it was questioning. And so she wadded up, threw it in a circular file. <laughs> But then she didn't notice at the time God was working on her heart and she pulled it back out and it, it demanded a response. And so she reached out to this pastor and this pastor who was a believer, instead of mocking her, engaged her and conversed with her, even in their disagreements and began a friendship with her. And so then she started reading the Bible, devouring the Bible. And she's an intellectual. She read it in multiple translations. And one time she tells a story of how she was at a dinner party with a bunch of her friends and this tra- transgender man, woman came up to her and said, Rosaria, you're reading the Bible, it's changing you. 
you need to stop. And she said, but what if it's true? What if Jesus really did overcome death? What if the stuff that we read about, what if the Jesus that we see in the Bible is not the same as the Christianity that we're sometimes seeing portrayed? What if that's real? real? And then the guy said, I used to be a Presbyterian pastor and I asked God to take this away and he didn't, so it's not true. But she couldn't stop reading the Bible. She kept reading the Bible and one day she said that she got up out of bed with her lesbian lover and goes to church, sits there, and then starts thinking about her friends and her. What if we all really are going to hell? And what if this is real? And continued in this relationship about a two-year journey. Then she ended up coming to the place where she counted the cost and she knew. She did not like the way that it worked out. She trusts Jesus. She's walking away from, she's a tenured professor and all the, her whole life has basically been built on the opposite of what she'd be surrendering to. But she surrendered to Christ and God radically transformed her life. She's now a pastor's wife here in Durham, by the way. She's got multiple kids. A picture of transformation. God still does that. He can do that to you. Whatever your story is, he can transform you. And it's not all quick. It's not like it's magical. It's not. Sometimes it's a process. He's faithful. He'll be, the work he begins when you trust him, he will be faithful to complete that work. So sometimes you, something else starts to rule fear, anxiety, depression, shame. He can deliver. He can deliver you. And even the difficult circumstances, when you're in the storm or when the stuff's so bad and when it sounds, seems like nobody's answering, he's at work. He knows. His timing's perfect. He will work it out for your good but look what these people do. They see this transformation. Do you know what they are? They're afraid. I didn't read those last words in verse 15. This man's sitting there. He's dressed. He's in his right mind. They see it, and they're afraid. Wait a minute. What are they afraid of? Because they, they were afraid of the demon-possessed guy. That's why they were trying to chain him up and to subdue him. But now no one was strong enough. But now Jesus has subdued him, and Jesus didn't break a sweat. They're afraid. It's just like verse 41 when the disciples saw, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And they were terrified, verse 41. They feared a great fear. They weren't afraid of the storm. They were afraid of Jesus. Because here's the reality. Jesus is not safe. So we like to fashion Jesus after our own, after our own image. And what many of us like to do, and we don't, if we're not reading the Bible and we're just coming up with a Jesus, we sing the songs and how we feel and what we want it to be and who we'd like Jesus to, who we think we're singing to, is that we make a Jesus who looks a lot like us. And, when, and we like, you know, material stuff and we like our sin and we like all these things. And so what we think is, well, if Jesus, if he's like us, then what'll happen is if I'll obey him, so what the preacher will say, we should do this or we should do that. And if I give some money or if I'm faith and nice to somebody or whatever thing then Jesus will grant my wishes. That Jesus will then make me comfortable. That everything's going to be okay. That Jesus isn't going to mess with the things that are on the throne of my life. That Jesus isn't going to mess with my stuff. That he's not going to take away my, I don't want to call it sin, but things that maybe he wouldn't be super fond of. But he, he's going to kind of let me have that stuff and I can enjoy it. It's this American view of Jesus. And Jesus is not that way. Jesus is dangerous. And these people realize that Jesus is dangerous. And if you want comfort and you want security and you want safety that comes from the money and your reputation and your job and your, whatever those things are, you think he's not going to touch that? That's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's like C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's a children's story. And the Jesus figure in the book is a lion. And one of the characters, a young girl named Lucy, she's about to meet the lion. She, she asks the question, is he safe? This is the Jesus figure, and I love how C.S. Lewis gives the next statement back. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But the next line's key. But he's good. And so the question becomes for us as followers of the Jesus, the real Jesus that we're talking about, not the one we fashion, 
is of course he's not safe. He may turn your life upside down. That's what he's done with this man. That's why they're so scared. See, the mind-boggling thing is, you mean to tell me this guy's got to be the worst? I'm willing to bet he's the worst-case scenario in this city. But there weren't people there that had sick kids. There, weren't, there wasn't like a marriage that was about to end a divorce that could have used Jesus' intervention. There wasn't somebody there with a mental illness. There wasn't somebody there that was dying of a disease they couldn't explain that could have used some of Jesus' help. And they're, they're so comfortable with their mess and with their sin, they'd rather Jesus left than he changed them. At least they're honest. Because you look and see what they say next. Verse 16, they get the whole story. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. So following this Jesus might cost money. Following this Jesus maybe in our lives are totally radically transformed. And what do they do? Then the people began to plead with Jesus, leave our region. Isn't it interesting that the same people who asked Jesus to leave their region is the same place where the demons beg to stay? What is it about? There's got to be some correlation. We don't want, we don't want the, the not real Jesus. I mean, we're cool with like a safe Jesus. Most people are okay with religion, just so you know. It's the real Jesus that there's a problem with because he's not safe, but he is good. And the question becomes, are you going to trust that if he does something that you don't want him to do, that that's actually what's best for you? That's real faith. Or is fear actually hindering you from having that kind of faith? Or your anger or your anxiety, or your sleepless nights, and the depression, and the shame. But see, Jesus can overrule that, and he can use those very things that were meant to destroy you to actually deliver you, because he can deliver you from anything. And so one response in this passage is to reject Jesus, which is what some of you should do. Because playing games and pretending like you've got this fake Jesus in your life, and that you're going to be okay with that and keep your sin, that's not reality. You're, you're pretending. You're playing a game. It'd be better for you to turn your back on Jesus, walk away, and let the destruction start to happen in your life and destroy you. And then hopefully before you die, you'll hit bottom and turn to him, for real turn to him. That would be better than you pretending like everything's okay and ending up like Matthew chapter 7. But didn't we cast out demons and didn't we do I don't even know you. You've been worshiping with Jesus. You made up. But then there's this other response. It's the guy who was transformed. Jesus, they ask him to leave, he grants the request. It's also interesting that Jesus grants two requests in this passage. The request of the demons to go into the pigs, the request of the people to leave the region, but he denies one request. Look at it. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus didn't let him. I want to be a missionary, Jesus. I'm going to go wherever you go, do whatever you want me to do, whenever you want me to do it. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I've got a different plan. It might not seem quite as radical. It's more mundane. But look what Jesus says for him to do. Go home to your family. So he does have a wife. He probably does have kids. Go back there. Be dad. Be father. Be husband. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he's had mercy on you. And then the guy says, no, wait, wait, I need to hang out with you for three years so that I can answer all the antagonistic questions. No, it's not what he says. I haven't graduated from Bible study fellowship yet. I didn't go to seminary. I, didn't, I don't go, to, I mean, the church that I go to, they just then tell me about this stuff. And Verse 20, so the man went. It wasn't his plan for his life. 
His dream now was, Jesus radically trains me. I'm going to go with him, and I'm going to follow him around. I'm going to be part of his ministry. And Jesus says, no, i got your own ministry. I want you to have right here in your home. And so he obeys, and he does it. He went away, and he began to tell in the Decapolis. That's ten cities. So the first evangelist to the Gentiles. How much Jesus had done for him. Aren't we thankful this guy, because most of us are Gentiles. Aren't we thankful this guy started sharing? And all the people were amazed. So one response is you can reject Jesus. Another response is you can be like the guy was earlier in the passage and acknowledge your helplessness and need for Jesus and surrender to Jesus. Or there's another response. Those of you who have been changed, go tell somebody else about the mercy God's had in your life. But we must respond. Jesus is overruling. Satan is trying to destroy, whether we're alert to it or not. He is there to destroy. Jesus is delivering. Some of you need deliverance today. Then you need to surrender to him and, re- and acknowledge, I am harassed. Maybe I don't outwardly look like the guy in this passage, but inwardly there's a mess in my heart, and I am harassed. I need to be delivered. I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. As you sit in your seat, we're going to sing a song in just a moment. If you want to pray with somebody, we're going to have some people that will be on both sides of the room, some over out here by these white chairs, some over by the ramp. If you want to pray with somebody, you can go over to one of those sides and pray with somebody. Some of you need to reject Jesus. Don't play games. Don't pretend. I mean, you're living life one way and then doing this church thing. I'm glad you're hearing the truth, but you're really pursuing your sin. Then go all out. And I don't want misery and I don't want terrible stuff to happen in your life, but if God's going to use that, better than you pretending like everything's okay. It's not. And if you don't want to do that, then repent. Turn to him. Some of you need to trust Jesus as your Savior. You're an enemy of God, but he did the work at the cross to deliver you. Come to the cross today and ask Jesus to be your Savior. And some of you, you've been transformed. You've been changed. Here's your, your application. Just like the guy, Jesus told the guy in this passage, go tell someone of the mercy that God has given in your life. You know what you need to be to have to be a world-changing Christian? It's not a seminary education. It's not that you know every verse in the Bible. It's not that you know every tactic to overcome an obstacle. All you need to be a world-changing Christian is a changed life. Do you have a changed life? And go tell somebody. Because what Jesus does, it's better than catching a cannonball or pulling trucks. I mean, he's overcome storms and overcome the enemy. Jesus is stronger. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful to you that you change us, that you don't, I mean, you love us, and even with our mess, and with our sin, and with our fear, and with our anger, and with our lust, and with our pride, all that, you love us, but you don't let us just sit in that, that you transform us. Will you transform our hearts right now? I pray for those who need to be delivered, that they would come to you in prayer, not just the prayer I'm praying, they would just cry out to you in their hearts, and that you would speak to them. We know that you are present. Somebody wrote on the board, alone, aloneness is a thing. Let them feel your sense, your presence. God, speak to our hearts. If there are those that need to trust your son as Jesus as Savior, I pray they would trust Jesus right now. I pray they would come forward, they would talk to somebody and pray with someone to trust Jesus as their Savior. I pray if there's anybody who needs to pray with someone because of pain or difficulty, they would do that. They would have the courage to step out and do that. And I pray for those that know you, that have been changed by you, they would declare that. And I just declare it in this room with a bunch of other people who declare it, but they would declare it when they're standing in front of somebody who's antagonistic. Or they might be like the guy in this passage, go home, just tell your kids. Tell your kids about the mercy God's had in your life. God, I pray that you would have that happen in our hearts. That we wouldn't just hear a message and leave, but that we would leave changed. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We'll stand together. I want to sing this song. Praise Jesus for being stronger. Like I said, if you need to pray with someone, we'll have some people that will come down here to these white chairs. And uh, we'll have some folks that will go over here off to the side too if you'd like to do that.